I want you to open to the book of, well, let's go back to the book of Numbers, and then we're going to skip to Deuteronomy, and then uh, move on from there. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you are life. Everything good comes from you. Everything worth doing, anything worth having, it's all you. So, Lord, we bless you tonight. We pray that you'd be honored in our midst, that you would be glorified, and that you'd speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak through me. Speak to hearts and through ears that are ready and open to hear. Lord, I ask that you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts so we would receive something from you tonight. Not just sit here and be educated, not sit here and be occupied, but sit here and receive from the Spirit of God and be changed by that word, be changed by that Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked into Numbers 14. We've been following the Israelites as they've journeyed to the promised land. It's been a great journey. Um, As we've gone through that journey, we've reached the promised land because it didn't take long for them to get there. You guys know that, right? If you've read this, we all know that the Israelites spent 40 years wandering around, but what a lot of people don't talk about is the fact that it didn't take them that long to get there. The 40 years was after they turned down the opportunity to go in. So their kids got to go in. Last week, we we talked about the spies who came back. Or I'm sorry, the week before last. Last week, we had special guests. But we talk about the spies that came back. And the spies came back with proof that God was right about this land, that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, that it was a land with, with delicious fruit and huge fruit. I mean, they had a cluster of grapes that took, you know, two people to carry on a pole. The land was good, but what happened? Twelve spies came back and ten of them said God was right about the land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's good. But here's the problem. There's giants. There's forts. The land itself is terrifying. We'd be swallowed up. Our children would be their prey. They said, we're grasshoppers in our own sight, so we must be in theirs. Only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, guys, if God wants us to go in, if God brought us here, all that's going to happen is if if he wants us to go in, we're going in. He said, you know, those giants that you're talking about, if God is with us, those giants will be food for us. He didn't literally, like, mean they were going to eat the giants because that's cannibalism. It's frowned upon even in ancient times, right? God did not tell them to go eat the giants. But what his point is, because the bad spies said, the land is going to consume us. And Joshua and Caleb say, guys, if God is with us, I mean, this is nothing if God is for us. What's against us? And we saw that, you know, 12 people can see the exact same thing and come up with two terribly different conclusions. You see, most of us in this room would look around and say, my circumstance is unique, and it is. Your life is unique. No one else shares the same life as you. I mean, I guess you're, you know, if you're married, you're sharing life together, but you might be able to say, hey, you know, my life is unique. You don't know what I've been through. But even if we all went through the exact same thing, do you know there'd be a group of us in this room that would say, hey, this is nothing for God. 
this is nothing. God can do this. I acknowledge that there are issues. I acknowledge that there are obstacles. I acknowledge that there are giants. But if God is with us, what do we have to worry about? And then the other group would say, no, it's too big. It's going to kill me. It's gonna, it's gonna, I mean, I can't do this. And the difference isn't the facts. The difference is how you approached it. Really, the difference is how did God factor into that picture? Because if you took God out of the picture, the 10 spies are the smart spies, right? Right, guys? Right? You agree with me on this, right? If you took God out of the picture, the 10 spies are right. You don't go attacking a land when, I mean, these Israelites knew nothing about war. Come on, guys. They were slaves in Egypt. Their job was to make bricks. They knew nothing about war. I've told you this before, but archaeologists tell us that wherever the Israelites conquered as their conquest of Canaan, Technology went backwards. These were a bunch of hillbillies. They did not know what they were doing. They didn't have weaponry or advanced techniques of war. They're just walking into a land saying, well, we're here. With their animals with them, their grandpa and their kids. They're not ready to fight. And so if you took God out of the picture, the 10 spies are the smart spies and Joshua and Caleb would be the idiots. Come on, guys. Don't go into the land. You can't take them. Nobody said you could. But Joshua and Caleb didn't go around saying, gosh, we're big enough. We can do this, guys. Come on now. We've been training for this. We've been pumping up for this. No, they didn't say that. Joshua and Caleb did not talk about themselves. What did they talk about? If God is with us. The issue is not how strong we are. The issue is not how able we are. The issue is not how smart we are. The issue is this. Is God with us? If God is with us, then we'll go where he tells us to go and let him worry about how it gets done. We just have to be obedient to that. So the last time we were in this, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the good report. We talked about the power of that good report, of being able to say, I don't deny the facts. I don't need to deny the facts. Like I said last time, Joshua and Caleb didn't say there's no such thing as giants. They're lying. They didn't say there's no forts. They said, yeah, all of that's true. But compared to God, it's nothing. Your, your facts are your facts. And no one is taking the facts away. No one is telling you that the doctor's wrong. I'm just telling you that there's something bigger than that. There is a God who goes beyond that. Nobody's telling you that your economic situation, that when you look at your bank account, you're wrong about what you see. We're just saying there's something bigger than what you see. And that is the God that fights for you. That is a God who has made promises to his people. You look at your own mortality, you look at your own humanity, and you have the facts, but the facts, the facts, as important as they are, are not necessarily the whole truth. The truth belongs to God, and God is greater. We're not fact deniers here. Faith is not about denying. Faith is about actually the opposite of denying. It's about saying, we know something even greater. I don't deny the facts. I do say that there is a God that's greater than this. There's a God that's bigger than this. Now, let's look in Numbers 14 again, and it says here, We're not going to read the whole thing again, but I'm going to read the part. I'm going to pick up with the part where Joshua and Caleb get really frustrated. 
And uh, this is kind of a theme with anybody that's been leading these people. They get really frustrated because these people go through roller coasters all the time. These people see the hand of God, and yet the next time they run into something difficult, they doubt that God's going to do anything. And I think if we were to really analyze that, there's a good chance many of us in this room have been that person at some point in your life where you went through the roller coaster. When things were good, you're like, praise the Lord. When things were rough, you're like, God, there is no God, or he doesn't care about me. But growing means you've got to get past that. You have to get a revelation of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness. You see, what was the problem is that the Israelites did not doubt that there was a God. And they didn't doubt that he was powerful. They saw that he was powerful. What did they doubt? Well, they doubted he was good and he was faithful. What did they say every time they got in trouble? God, did you bring us out here to kill us? That was the question every time. God, why do you want to kill us? God, why couldn't we just die in Egypt? Were there not enough, not enough graves in Egypt? God, are you, are you pranking us right now? God, what are you doing? Because they doubted the character of God. When you doubt the character of God, it changes everything. This is really what your life is about. Your life is about believing God or disbelieving God. I know that sounds very simple, but that's, that's the crux of life. Do I believe God? Because I'll tell you, as much as the Israelites sinned, and they did. Guys, they, they made a, Moses went up on the mountain and he was getting the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, the Israelites freaked out because Moses was gone. And because Moses is gone, we don't have a leader. Oh, oh my goodness, we, God's not, God's up on a mountain. What are we going to do? Let's make an idol. Which I've never had that urge, right? Like I've never said, wow, you know, I mean, Nobody's around to encourage me. I guess I should make, a, uh, make some livestock and bow down to it. But that's exactly what they did. Not only did they make a golden idol, but they went back to the Egyptians' way of worshiping, which was debauchery. Like they had a, a, a really disgusting party where they did all the things they weren't supposed to do. And Moses comes and, and Joshua and Moses are talking and one of them says, sounds like there's a war down there. The other one says, that's not a war. It's just a really bad party. And they come down the mountain and the people of Israel have just thrown off everything good and they've, they've started worshiping this stupid statue of a cow because, because, right, a statue of a cow seems powerful, doesn't it? And they come down and Moses gets so ticked that he smashes the Ten Commandments. You know the story. And Aaron, his brother, the high priest, you know, the, supposedly the, the holy guy in the group, says, we threw our jewelry in the fire and this golden calf jumped out. Which nobody buys that. I don't, I don't know, you know. Like my son Moses is too smart to say things like that to me. Like he's... Do you ever have somebody give you an excuse that just insults your intelligence and you just go, well, that's exactly what happened. And as much as they sin by idolatry, sin by sexual immorality, they sin by rebellion. Do you know what? The book of Hebrews says that there was one sin that kept them out of the promised land. And do you know what that sin was? It was unbelief. 
The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, and we'll read some in that Hebrews, but it says, this is what kept them out. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. Because unbelief is the root of all that other stuff. They turned to idolatry because they didn't believe God was still with them. They rebelled because they didn't believe God was faithful. They, they grumbled because they didn't believe God was good. Unbelief was the root of all of this. And out of their mouths, not only did they demonstrate their unbelief, but they spread it. And Joshua in verse 6 says, or verse 7, they spoke to the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. It's really good. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he'll bring us into this land and he'll give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And I want you to see what Joshua and Caleb are saying to them. They're saying, don't rebel against the Lord. So many times we think rebellion starts and ends with action, with us physically doing something. But I'll tell you that rebellion starts as a place in your heart, but it becomes real when you let it come out of your mouth. Rebellion starts here. It starts here and it can start small, right? Guys, you and I both know that you're going to be tempted in things and it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin. It's not, it's not, I mean, it would be impossible for you to never have a thought that entered your mind that was contrary to God. The question is, do you entertain that thought? Do you keep that thought? Do you invite that thought in and, and give it some tea and let it sit on the couch? Do you let that thought become part of you? The minute we start talking like that, we've let that thing become part of us. I want to read you what Moses said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses is speaking on behalf of God. This is after the Israelites have been turned away from the promised land and they've been told that they're going to wander for 40 years. God said 40 years one year for each day you spent spying out that land. That's dramatic, isn't it? He said, you aren't going to see the promised land. Your kids will. He said, the same kids you said would be pray for the enemy, they're going to inherit the land. Only two out of this generation will see the promised land, and that's Joshua and Caleb. Because they've kept my word and they followed me. Deuteronomy 1, verse 26 says, Yet you were not, well, let's start in verse 24. They turned and they went up into the hill country and came to the valley of a skull and spied it out. Then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and they brought it down to us. And they brought back a report and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. Yet you were not willing to go up. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents, and you said, because the Lord hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us in the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Listen, where did this rebellion start? It started with a wrong belief about God, didn't it? 
They doubted God. They doubted his character. What did they say? Because the Lord hates us. God hates us. A few weeks ago, I told you, I told you about this realization that, that how many people have I run into in all of the years of being a Christian, all the years of being ministry, I've run into so many people that you ask them what changed their life? What was the moment where things changed? What was the word from God that shifted their heart? So many of them go back to a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And after hearing it 10 million times, it's easy to say, well, that's kind of cliche. But there's a reason. There's a reason people keep saying that verse. Why is that verse so affected so many people? It's because for so many years, most people really don't believe God has a good thing planned for them. They don't believe that God is for them. They don't believe that God has something good ahead of them. They doubt that. So, so many people, their lives change when they finally just believe, God, you have a good plan for me. And the Israelites, their issues started when they said, the Lord hates us. First John 4, I don't want you to turn there, but I'll just say this. There's a dramatic verse that says, we have come to know and to believe the love of God that he has for us. We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. I don't know how long it took you to figure that out. Maybe you're still figuring it out. But it is a major shift when you can believe that God loves you. You know, people will get up and they'll say, well, man, you guys got to talk about something else. That's baby stuff, just God loves me, God loves me. Yeah, I understand. We do need depth, we need meat. But if you can't start with the foundation that God loves you, everything else is gonna crumble. God is love. That's just what he, that's what he says. So if you can't start with that foundation, everything else is gonna be skewed, everything else is gonna be messed up. The Israelites doubted God's goodness. God hates us, so he's gonna kill us. When you fear and when you have that, remember, this is what God keeps saying. This is Moses tells them. Joshua and Caleb tell them. God tells them. He says, only do not fear. There's a reason it's a command in the Bible. Don't fear. There's a reason Jesus commanded it. There's a reason God commanded it. There's a reason it's over and over. Do not fear. Because it's not just about your feeling. It's not just about feeling fear that's a bad thing. Fear leads you to make bad decisions. Fear leads you to rebel against God. We don't make good decisions out of fear. Why? Because we know we're not making a God decision because of fear. Because his perfect love casts out all fear. Now there's a fear of the Lord, which is a reverence for God, but that's not what this is talking about. When God says, do not fear, you know what he's talking about. That fear that grips you, that fear that makes you run, that fear that makes you quit, the fear that makes you doubt God. Don't fear Don't panic. I've never seen anybody make a good decision out of panic. You know, I'm a I'm I'm a guy that loves history. And I love love reading about these old battles and what changed and what shifted them. And I'll tell you, there were some there were some battles that were won by armies that had no business winning the battle. 
But the difference was they kept their nerve, they kept their guts, and they kept fighting when the other guys ran away. Half the battle was just making the other guys run away. My ancestors were a bunch of freaks who went into battle like with lime in their hair, naked, painted blue. There is no physical advantage to being naked in battle. You guys can figure that out. That's a bad move as far as like not getting hurt. But do you know what it did? It freaks the other guy out. You look at those weirdos with the spiky hair and the blue tattoos all over them and, and they're naked and they're yelling and, you know, they're, they're making weird gestures and, and, and sounds. I mean, there were people that ran away before the battle even started because they said, I'm not messing with those guys. I've seen Christians that had every reason to believe that God was going to get them through it. They had, you had every reason to believe they are going to overcome, but they quit because they got scared or they panicked and ran. People move because they panic. People get in and out of relationships because they panic. People quit believing God because they panicked. But if you can get your heart right about the character of God, God is good. God is faithful. He's not just good in general. He's good to me. He's not just faithful in a cosmic sense. He's faithful to me. When you can believe that, your heart won't rebel because you'll know who he is. The scripture says it talks about, Daniel prophesied about a day when the enemy would rise up and make a big mess. And then he says this, but the people that know their God One translation says, the people that intimately know their God will be strong and will resist him. Another translation says, will be strong and do great exploits. What's the difference? The people knew their God. When you know your God, everything changes. You grumbled in your tents. I suppose we think sometimes what I say in my own home is my own business, and it is. But that doesn't make it right. You know, I think some of the most valuable conversations take place. You married folks take place in the car ride home, take place in the house when no one else is listening. Those are the moments when it is easiest to give in to fear, to give in to doubt. It's your job to encourage one another in these times. You don't have to deny what's going on, but you do need to say, listen, what do we know? We know God is still with us. These are the promises we're hanging on to. Come on, what are we holding on to right now? That person that you're talking with when no one else is around, that person that you're spending time with back and forth in conversation when no one is listening, that is the most important person outside of Jesus. That is the most important person to your spiritual walk because what they say to you and what you say to them is gonna change everything. They grumbled in their tents. That's where it started. Starts in the tents, right? Grumble in your tents. Whatever you had swirling around your head just took on a new level of reality because now you let it out. Once you start talking about it, it gains credibility, doesn't it? Even in your own heart. (sighs) Felt good to say that out loud. Grumble in your tents a little bit. And you know, My wife didn't freak out when I said it, so I'm going to say it to my neighbor. 
You know, God hates us. Why are we doing this? And he says, because of this, you said the Lord hates us. You say he brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Then you said, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, don't be shocked. Don't fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God, Yahweh your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you've walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. See, Moses tried to counteract their doubt by saying, guys, look, God's been with us this whole time. He carried us like a father carries his son in the wilderness. He found a place for us to camp at night. He, he was with us. We saw him. We physically saw him. In the daytime, we saw him like a cloud. At night, we saw him like a pillar of fire. He never left us. He delivered us out of all of this. But still, you didn't trust God. Still you rebelled against God. Let me tell you this, not believing God. You might think it's only rebellion when you physically do something. But rebellion begins with your words, where you allow your heart to go. In the book of Hebrews, it calls it a a wicked and unbelieving heart. Sometimes we just think it's so... Innocent, you know what I mean? How many of you have heard this? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I'll repeat it. How many of you have heard this statement? You're an optimist, but I'm a realist. You heard that? What you're saying is reality is really bad. And guess what? Take God out of the picture, it is. The world's not getting better. The planet's not getting better. There's such a thing called entropy. Which means, without another force, things are just going to continually descend towards chaos. Things don't get better on their own. They get worse on their own. Right? You leave some fruit on the counter, it doesn't get better. Right? Life without God does not get better. It gets worse. So without God, yeah, totally. Be a pessimist. Call it reality. But with God... That's the silliest thing in the world. So somebody says, I'm not an optimist, I'm a realist. Which basically you're saying the worst thing that can happen, that's my reality. Instead, you got to shift that and say, because God is with me. I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. My reality is that if God is for me, who can be against me? My reality is greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. My reality is he has overcome the world. Now, there's a phrase here that they said that, that sticks in my heart. And I've got to admit, I've tripped over it once or twice. And that's this phrase. He said that they said to one another, our brethren made our hearts melt. Have you been that person before? You don't need to answer out loud. In fact, I prefer that you don't. But have you been that person that tipped the scales toward unbelief for someone else. You thought you were helping because they just needed all the details, but 
Instead, what you did was you made their heart melt. Sometimes hard to believe this, but we have a great effect on one another. We have a really big effect on each other. We have the ability to strengthen one another's hearts or cause each other's hearts to melt. You know, the word encourage, our English word encourage comes from the Latin, which means to give heart. To encourage means to strengthen someone's heart. What did Jesus say? Take heart. Be of good courage. I've overcome the world. We have responsibility for one another. Whether you like it or not, we do. I know that we live in self-help generation that, you know, sells the idea that, you know, well, you know, you don't need anybody else. You just need to, you know, get your life together, take these keys, take these steps, do this thing, and you'll be fine. Leave all these losers behind you, right? But the truth is we do need one another. There's going to be times where you say, no, though none go with me, I'll still follow. There's going to be times where you feel alone, but that doesn't give us an excuse to separate from one another. In fact, the Bible says one body part is not allowed to say to the other part, I have no need of you. We need one another. You know, I, uh, this story about the Israelites rebelling against God and not going into the promised land, the book in the New Testament that mentions it over and over and over again is the book of Hebrews. It comes up over and over and over again. And you know, the book of Hebrews is written to a church that's going through persecution. They're going through opposition. And... and there is a, there's an emphasis on endure, stay, keep going, keep running the race, fix your eyes on Jesus. You can do this. You don't have to, don't give up, don't turn back. But there is such an emphasis in that whole book on making sure not one of you falls away. Make sure a root of bitterness does not spring up in any of your hearts. Lifting up the hands that hang down, strengthening the, the knees that are feeble, It doesn't allow you to remove yourself and say, I'll look after me. You look after you. No, it says, make sure there's not in any one of you this kind of attitude. It puts us in a responsibility for one another. I'm sort of responsible for you. Now, ultimately, you got to make your own decisions. But there's a responsibility in my part to encourage you, to pray for you, to be there for you, to love you. There's a responsibility for one another. Now, let me tell you the other side, lest you go around blaming everybody else. Well, I just fell away because no one encouraged me. That doesn't hold water really either. (laughs) Right? Because you can blame everybody. Remember, God said to these guys, he's talking to the people who said, our brethren made our hearts melt, and he doesn't let them off the hook. He says, no, no, they may have given you a bad report, but you had to choose to believe it. Right? What did Jesus say? Like, guys, you can say, well, I can't help it if somebody gives me a bad report and my heart melts. Yes, you can. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't let your heart melt, guys. Doesn't matter what somebody tells you. Doesn't matter what they spew at you. Doesn't matter what vomit they put on you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. What's the solution to not letting your heart be troubled? Believe in God, believe in me. Actually, probably better translated, Jesus was saying, you believe in God, so believe in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe. That's the solution. I want to read you from Hebrews chapter 3, and let's, let's bring it around to this. 
Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. I said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Take care that there not be in any one of you. Like, come on, man, just leave me out of it. I'll be responsible for me. Chance is responsible for chance. Let's leave it at that. But it doesn't say that. Take care that there not be in any one of you. We have a part to play here. You know, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, it's in 1 Thessalonians, it says, strengthen, encourage the faint-hearted, admonish the unruly. It talks about this need. When you see someone that's faint-hearted, your responsibility is to strengthen and encourage them. Like I told you later in Hebrews, it says, lift up the hands that hang down. Strengthen the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for them. Goes on to say later in Romans that the ones that are strong are to bear with the failings of the weak. If you feel like your fight, your fight is going well, you feel like you've got some strength, you've got some victory on the other side here, you've been fighting the good fight and you've been conquering and overcoming, well, look around. And find someone who's faint-hearted. You could be the difference between their heart melting and their heart being strengthened. He says this. As they say, well, God says, you, you don't be like your fathers. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Man, that's harsh, isn't it? We think that unbelieving is just passive, right? Like, well, I didn't believe. He says unbelieving heart is an evil heart. I know that's a, that's a harsh thing to say, but it's true. So let's not let our hearts be that way. He says this, that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day. I'm one of those guys that just assumes if I've told you once, you know it for the rest of your life, right? I mean, I tell my wife I, I love her several times a day, but there's a bunch of other things. Like, I, I realize that I have to remind myself, this person, I told them they were doing a good job like six months ago. They're still doing a good job. And I expect you to remember that I said six months ago, nothing's changed. I didn't tell you you're doing a bad job. But the scripture says, encourage one another day after day. As long as it's still called today. Okay, we get the point. That means every day, right? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's not my fault that this person fell away and started getting hardened by sin. It's not my fault. But he says, you have a part to play. Encourage them. Don't let them fall into that by unbelief. And he says, for we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast 
the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did who, who, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So that we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So encourage one another day after day. In fact, he goes on to say later, I believe it's in the 10th chapter where he says, so don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but keep on encouraging each other day after day, even more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. The closer we get to the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ, the more difficult times we'll get and the more we're going to need to encourage one another. I never want to be that guy that just because I had to tell everybody the way I saw it, because I was afraid that somebody had too much false hope, I don't want to be that guy that somebody goes back and says, they made my heart melt. I believed God until they said this, and it made me trip. I understand that that person has a responsibility too, right? You have a responsibility not to let your heart melt. But I have a responsibility to encourage you as best as I can. An interesting thought. That whole group of people that refused to go into the promised land, they all died over the period of 40 years. They didn't go into the promised land. But the 10 spies who gave a bad report, they died immediately. There was a different standard for them because they were trusted with speaking the report of the Lord. So let's consider this, guys. When it comes time to having these conversations at our homes, having these conversations between each other. We don't need to paint a rosy picture that denies what's going on. But we do need to encourage each other that God is always good. That God is always faithful. That his promises are always yes, and we add our amen to that. We are responsible to to, to remind each other who God is. I'm not responsible to, to tell you the solution to your problem because most of the time I don't know it. I can't fix everything in your life. What I can do is remind you who God is. Remind you of his promises. Remind you who you are in Christ. I can do that. I don't have to fix your problems. He'll do that. But man, let's encourage one another. Never let it be said, they made my heart melt. Instead, let it be said of us, we encouraged one another's hearts. We gave each other heart. We kept each other going. When it felt like we were going to give up, when it felt like we wanted to run away, somebody came along and said something simple. And guys, don't fall into the trap of saying they know everything. This person's been a believer longer than I have. What do I have to say to them? I've been so encouraged by believers telling me stuff that I've already heard but it was a word from the Lord. Tell me the scripture I've heard a thousand times. Go for it. I need it. My own wife will preach my sermons back to me. And I'm thankful for it. Because we need to hear it. We need to be reminded. God doesn't hate you. God has not abandoned you. Hold fast the confession of your faith. 
Let's let our confession be his. Now, the word confession means to say the same thing. So many times we say, you know, you better fess up. And confession just means admitting to something. But it means saying the same thing. Even when it talks about confessing your sin, what it's talking about, the biggest part of confessing your sin is getting on the same side of it as Jesus. Saying, I agree with you about this. You're right. That is bad. You're right. I don't want to do that. You're right. Thank God I'm forgiven. Thank God that, Lord, your blood washes me clean. And I don't have to have a part of that. Let's hold fast our confession of faith because he is faithful. Amen.